If you could have traveled with the Apostle Paul, whoa, what a trip that would have been. He was here, he was there, he was everywhere. He just kept pushing, going. You put it all together. In the life of the Apostle, what about 30? I mean, his, his life as a, as a born-again man, from the Damascus Road to the loss of his head in Rome about 67 AD, that 30 plus 35 years, um, this man was just, and actually you could put it in a, even a more constrained, uh, constricted time period because he was for 14 years, he was out in a desert area, he was getting his, his whole world had been turned upside down, and so he had to get reoriented, theologically, taking his theology, knowledge of the Old Testament, and get it bathed in all the new revelation with regard to the gospel. He was probably working with a 20-year period where he was just going everywhere. Now, why? What gave Paul meaning? Would you like to know? You've come to the right place. He tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 11 through 15. He doesn't mince words. Now, but that's not all. It's one thing to have meaning. But you can, you can have meaning and be a slug about it and not really carry through. I mean, you can say, yeah, I know who I am. I know I'm here. And just kind of go on uh, without a lot of push and drive and, and taking care of business. Well, guess what? Paul said, here's what motivates me. Would you like to know what motivated Paul? So that he kept pushing, pushing, taking the gospel, this place, that place, hard places, risking his life. Just read 2 Corinthians 11. Not now, but look at what he went through. What motivated him? Two things. The meaning, the meaning, the thread of meaning runs right through these verses. And there are two motives. All right? Let's look at them. Let's examine them. And they are, you know, this is one of the, this is why Bible exposition is such a valuable thing. Would you ever land on this and make it the highlight sermon of your year? I mean, if you're the kind of preacher where you're just looking for topics and you're looking things that really excite you, you may never land on verses 11, 12, 13, 14, and 15. Maybe 14 and 15. So, anyway, we're here. Well, Justin, thanks for recommending this section to me here. I've been through it. It's been a long time ago, and this is really, it's really helped to fire up the old furnace again on this, uh, this process, and I love it. Uh, here it is. All right, let's get these two motivating factors. Number one, oh, and by the way, lest this sound like some kind of a clinic, and I'm just giving you some kind of theoretical, this is Paul, well, let's do, an, let's do a spiritual autopsy on him. And, oh, isn't that nice? What a man. For us, for us, for you and me here tonight, what should be motivating you and me? Could we make it very personal? Think of it that way. This should be motivating me. Here it is. All right, verse 11. Now, let me give you what I think. I'll just make the statement. You'll see it uh, presented on the screen. But then I'm going to work through Verses uh, 11, I'll read through verses 11 and 13 and comment on them. So let me do both. All right, first of all, here it is. The first thing 
that Paul mentions that motivated him was the fact that, and it's found in the context, it really goes back up to verses 9 and 10. This is what drove him. Our appearance before Christ is to result in personal integrity. He's defending his integrity here. And Christ as judge, that is what shook Paul, drove him, moved him. All right, let's look at the text. Follow with me now. I hope you have your Bible open. Let's look at it. He says, therefore. What do we know? When you see a therefore or a wherefore, see what it's there for. What is it there for? Just run back up and look at the previous verse, and you can see that appearing before the judgment seat of Christ. That was a motivating factor. Christ as judge. I think the King James even has the word from verse 10, if any of you have a King James, the terror of the, he mentions the fear in verse, uh, excuse me, verse 11, but it takes that word in reference to the judgment seat of Christ. All right, now we need to work with that a little bit. Should we be terrified at meeting Christ? Well, maybe, but let's look at it. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, that's the word phobos. We get our word phobia from it, fear of the Lord. Without going into a, an extensive theological explanation of that, I'll just say that I think the fear of the Lord is this awe of God. It's the response to his perfections, to his holiness, to his justice, to his righteousness, to his infinity, to his sovereignty, to his omniscience, to his omnipotence, his omnipresence, his veracity, his grace, his mercy. It's being so wowed by that, awed by God, that what do you do? Well, let's listen. Knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. Now, we would like to make that out to be, and it just would really fit a great sermon topic, just persuade others to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's true. That's a truth, but that's not what he's saying here. What he wants to do here, what he is doing is that he, you must remember this, there are three people in the room in this, in this letter. When he's writing, when Paul's writing 2 Corinthians, there are three people, three groups, three people, one's a group. There's Paul, the Corinthians, and Paul's critics, his adversaries. He's having to answer criticisms of him by his adversaries. And they were the 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 church in Corinth had become infested with those who were trying to do everything they could to just knock Paul's feet right out from under him, discredit him, malign him, attack him. We think, why could they do that? Were they apostle Paul? We revere him. We have him on a pedestal. This is 2,000 years later. <laughs> he had his enemies. And so what he's answering here, his enemies were saying, Paul's not honest. He doesn't tell you the truth. You can't believe him. One of the accusations, he didn't tell you the whole gospel. Could we start there? Because there are other things that you need to know other than this beautiful, this, what Paul says is just by grace alone, through faith. Ah, wait a minute. There are other, other things. Well, okay, Paul's saying he's, he's being criticized that he's dishonest. 
And Paul said, listen, he was appealing to the consciences of the Corinthians. That's what he means by this. We persuade others. But what we are is known to God. God knows me. Oh, he sees me through and through. He is the, the MRI on my soul, my spirit, my motives, my thoughts. And I hope it is known also to your conscience, you Corinthians. I'm appealing to you. You know, you saw me. You know, I've written one letter to you already, at least one letter. You know, we are not commending ourselves. Let me just stop there and develop this 11th verse for a moment. In your notes, I ask the question here, what is your most important asset? And you would answer, integrity, honesty. That Paul was a man of integrity. He makes much of this in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 12, chapter 4, verse 1, chapter 3, 6, verse 3, chapter 7, verse 2. Paul's character, his credentials, his conduct, he says, we're plain to God. God knows my heart. He's my witness. And he's saying also, my integrity, my honesty, that what you see is what you get. I'm not a hypocrite. That that was, that was obvious to the Corinthians. It's plain. So, now, notice something else in this 11th verse. You see the word no? Circle it three times. See? He says, known to God. Uh, knowing the fear of the Lord, known to God, and then known also to your consciences. Uh, Your conscience. I'm particularly interested in the first and the third use of that word, no. Let me say something about that word. The word knowing here is used to speak of, get this now, the supernatural work in the believer's mind, mind of being able to connect truth to life. How one thinks, one is motivated, how one lives, how one makes decisions. You know what we call this in theological language? Theologians use the term illumination. You know what illumination is? It's when you have a Bible study, like what we're doing right now. And the Holy Spirit is at work. If you're God's child, he's doing something. You may not feel it. Probably don't. But you begin to make a connection. See the significance of it. And it begins, okay. And then you go out of here, and it's going to grow on you. And you change. Look, hey, let me ask you this. You've been a believer for a good while. Are you the same kind of person you were 10 years ago, 5 years ago, 15, 20, 30 years ago? I hope not. And I think we could say you know what's happened? The Holy Spirit has taken the word and has given us a grasp of the significance of it. And he's worked to create incremental change over periods of time. That's all bound up in that word no. One source puts it this way. That a spiritual viewpoint, speaking of this word no, a spiritual viewpoint not evident to those who judge merely by superficial appearances. Did you get that? It's a spiritual viewpoint, knowing, not evident to those who judge merely by superficial appearances. So there's some people who don't get it. Now, this truth of 
of which Paul speaks, he says, knowing the fear of the Lord. This is said in light of the fact that he and all believers, Paul and all believers, were going to have to stand before Christ at the judgment seat of Christ. And the ways in which we have behaved that displease the Lord, if we, in those, well, as we reflect on those times when we've displeased the Lord, we have reason to be fearful of the judgment seat of Christ. Don't make the mistake of thinking that fire is associated only with the lake of fire. Now, follow me carefully here because I don't want you to turn out to be a heretic on something. We're not talking about purgatory, that you've got to go get purged. Taking, that's what the Roman Catholic Church has done with the fire in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Saved as through fire? All right, stay with me. Paul says, yes, in his first letter to the Corinthians, that some will be saved as through fire. What's that mean? No rewards. No rewards. Saved and no more. Now that ought to send shockwaves through any congregation. You mean my life could go up in smoke? You mean I go to hell? No. You're a believer? Loss of reward. Disobedient Christians should be terrified at this prospect. Now here's a paraphrase I came across this week. I want to read it. It, you know what a paraphrase is? It's just it's taking a statement of truth in the text, and it's just expanding it in your own words. I came across this. I thought it worked well here. Listen to it. This is what Paul's saying. You're with me? This is what Paul's saying. When I think about the fearful experience of having your whole life put to the test, I just have to do what I can to persuade people to get their act together. I want them to behave consistently with their profession of faith. I want them to be people who are the same people inside and out. I want them to be people who, when you look at them, you are seeing the same person you would be looking at if you could be a fly on the wall at home when nobody's around. You you getting it? (laughs) I want all Christians, coming back, paraphrasing Paul, I want all Christians to be open and above board. We're that way before God. I hope you will see that in due time. (laughs) That's verse 11. That's what he's saying. So integrity is the believer's most important asset. Genuineness. Jesus was more severe. You know what sin? I almost gave it away. What was Jesus more severe with than anything else in his ministry? Hypocrisy. He scorched the Pharisees for this. Just read Matthew 23. Woo! It's hot! He blasted them. And appearing to be something on the outside, but contrary to this on the inside. And if you listen to, just think of this for a minute. If you listen to combatants in the political wars, you will notice that one of the most common weapons is to accuse the opposition of hypocrisy. All the time you hear. We count on honesty in those who run our institutions and government, you know, the executive branch, legislative branch, judicial branch. And we know the sinking feeling when we hear of the dishonesty of a judge who's been exposed. I mean, that, I mean, it's always a sinking feeling when you hear it, but someone who's invested with 
with authority to be used for justice sake. We say the integrity of a building depends on a solid foundation. We use the word integrity that way. A society begins to crumble when its leaders become corrupt. When they appear to be one thing on the outside, but turn out to be something entirely different in their character. I mean, we got a county around here. I see it in the news all the time. I'm thinking, they got to get there. they got to do some house cleaning. <laughs> they're just, seems like the whole county's falling apart. Because what? Bribery? You can't trust this person. You get an ethics committee, and then they're, they're accused of being uh, violating ethics. It's just crazy. So there it is with this 11th verse. I have an illustration. I asked Beth this since she is the skills shopper in the grocery store. I said, Beth, what fruit is it that is the more difficult to determine whether it is what you see on the outside may not be what you get on the inside? I had a theory. And she said, an apple. And I found that to be true. That, you, you know, it can look nice and red and shiny and then you get into it and it's rotten. Okay, point being, what are you on the inside? Does it match up with what you are on the outside or does what you are on the outside match up with, with what you are on the inside? All right, now, verse 12. Whew, we got to step on it here. Verse 12. Look at it. You with me? Look at the text. Let's, let's squeeze it and then we'll go to this next movement here. He's still talking about the motive of appearing before the judgment seat of Christ. That is what moves Paul. Verse 12, he said, We are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. Now, can you guess what charge was being made against Paul that he answers here? He, they were saying, get the, this is what they were saying. Paul, he is into the self-promotion business. He really likes to put himself out there. That word, outward appearance, the Greek word is prosopon. The word face in Greek. How one looks. How one sounds. Your performance. And so, what is the apostle saying in this text? This. And I ask a question in verse 12. What is a recipe for failure? And the answer is self-promotion. 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 Don't forget the judgment seat of Christ. Now, keep that in mind. Self-promotion creates flammable works. Wood, hay, stubble. Paul was charged by his critics with being a self-promoter. How could this be? I think this charge was actually one of projection. You know what projection is? Is when someone is guilty of the sin, projects it onto someone else and charges them with it. How could this be? This charge was, as I said, one of projection. They were projecting onto Paul the very thing of which they were guilty, his critics. Legalists are very interesting in this way, and I think that was a huge component in among uh, these uh, uh, critics, adversaries of the apostle. Their system of thought in life was performance-based, boasting in appearance. See me? Don't I look good? Aren't I righteous? Aren't I holy? See what kind of sacrifices we make? 
Now, as you know, the Pharisees had developed this kind of theology into an art form. <laughs> Remember the Sermon on the Mount and, and uh, Matthew in chapter 6, they left to go around. If they, if they fasted, what did they do? They just, of course, this kind of hairstyles and fashion now, but uh, they just got their hair all disheveled, and uh, they just, they look haggard, and they just, and, and people would see them and say, ooh, they're fasting. You can just see their sunken eyes, and just, oh, my, I don't see how they do it. How do they do it? And so this, and it could be other things, like trump, blowing a trumpet when you give, doing things that you've got a hidden agenda and performance-based. Look at me. God, don't you like me better now? Aren't I doing good? we got to do some catwalking. <laughs> I hope if you read the bulletin article this morning, we've got to do some catwalking to avoid pride in our performance, in our duties, in the name of God. All of us do. None of us are exempt. The pursuit of self-recognition and self-exaltation are destructive to the church. 1 Corinthians 3, 15 and 16. It's where Paul says that uh, God's going to deal with you. You're going to be taken to the woodshed if you destroy his church. And what is pride? It's a state of mind. It's a mindset. Oh, yeah, I know. It's driven by its, its motivation. It's the heart, heart, mind. But it's more focused on oneself than in serving. Now, I've created a little P-R-I-D-E acronym. Take it for what it's worth. It doesn't explain everything there is to be explained about pride. Pride's a big, big, huge biblical topic. But I've worked... Let me just give you these symptoms. P-R-I-D-E. Yeah, five. Okay. Pride. P. These are just symptoms. Performance is more important than character. Perfection also comes into the picture here. So you could put another P with this first one. Striving for everything to be perfect for the recognition. Feeling good about oneself as the primary motive. Whoa. So that I feel good about myself. That's what's significant. Okay, i got to keep moving through these. <laughs> Number two, R. Resistance to authority for being being disrespectful. Pushing back at being told what to do. Well, we know how this looks in a two-year-old. <laughs> but it can happen to a 52-year-old. Or anyone. Pushing back is authority. You're not going to tell me what to do. Who do, you, who, who do you think you are correcting me? I know what I'm doing. I. Impatience and irritability. Got two eyes here. Impatience and irritability. This is anger at others because my plans, my schedule is being challenged. You are expecting me to make a change for you. Who do you think you are? Now, if we can say that, we may say, well, I'll have to pray about that. I don't know. Uh, you know, we got some lame little thing, but we can discuss. We can discuss. We have to fight it. Now, I'm not saying because, okay, you get the impulse, you get the temptation. 
get the temptation, but that then that's where the sword of the Spirit's got to come out. And God, help me, I'm having the wrong response. And you handle it right there on the spot in two seconds. That's not a good response, Lord. Oh, no, yes, I'll be there. I'll make my chance. I'll change my plans. I'll be there. I'll do that. D, deceitfulness in covering up sins, faults, and mistakes. Just trying, you know, always polishing the apple. I'm looking a lot better than I really am. So I can deceive you. Oh, and then how many ways are there of doing that? You know, I can use God talk. And I can just do a lot of schmoozing. You know, it's a lot of, I know, you know, you know how to work in Christian circles, make people think one thing's true, it's not true. And E, E, expressions of dissatisfaction with God. Passing judgment on God. Look what God's done to me. Why is he doing this to me? Now, verse um, 13. With me? I didn't go too fast for you there. Verse 13. Let's look at it. We've got another question here. And the question is, why did Paul's enemies say he was crazy? Okay. And I think I found the verse where uh, Francis Chan got the title of his book, Crazy Love. Uh, young people, you know, you know this book. Somebody just gave it to me recently and asked me to read it. Um, okay, back to the text, verse 13. For if we are beside ourse- ourselves, ekistemi is the, the word in the original, out of your mind. If we are beside ourselves, well, what, what, so what's the criticism? Hey, Paul's a nut. You've got to watch out for him. He's over the top. Okay. Boy, if we ever set ourselves, it's for God. If we are in our right mind, it's for you. Now, what was being in your right mind? Preaching, practicing the gospel. That's being right mind. That's healthy mental attitude. And the you here would be it's for you, your advantage. Okay, here it is. This is the question. What did Paul's enemies say? Why did Paul's enemies say he was crazy? Well, they interpreted his zeal for God as being craziness. He's wild, out of control, mad. By the way, you're not in bad company if you get this charge against you. You know who was also accused of being crazy? Jesus was accused. Remember, he comes in from a long day. This is in Mark chapter 3, verse 21. And when he gets home, guess what? This is the welcoming committee. Come in here. You're crazy. <laughs> we got to get you under control. The Son of God. The Son of God on a mission. This Heavenly Father for the salvation of the lost. He said, you're crazy. Oh, and you know, Paul was accused on another occasion of being crazy. This was when he was before Festus. Festus, the Roman, the cultured, high-class Roman, who was quizzing Paul about his message. Now, this Roman, he didn't quite get the language, the vocabulary. And so Paul there is going through his testimony, and he's giving him the story. It's, it's the story of the gospel. And you know what Festus said? Hey, you're crazy, Paul. <laughs> you're nuts. Well, it wasn't Paul who was nuts. So therefore, I say this, that 
Our mental health is defined and governed by God's view of me, not the world's view of me. And living for the glory of God and the good of others is not being crazy. Maybe Francis Chan's book, that's a good guy, Crazy Love. Okay. I got to check and see. Has anybody read it? Do they know if this is the text? Did he get, did he work with this text? Uh, Okay. Crazy Love. Hey, it works. Crazy Love. To live for God and others is set in contrast to those without Christ in the gospel. Risk-taking for the gospel is not madness. Have you ever, used, have you ever been accused of being a, a nutcase because of your Christianity? I remember I was early in my Christian experience. It was in the first couple of years. And I won't tell you who accused me of it. It really, ooh. And I, it, I was young in the faith, and it did it, kind of stagger me. I, it gave me some momentary self-doubt. I thought, well, am I, am I over the top? And I was excused. And the, the warning, it was something like this. It was from an older person said, you've got to be careful. I've known Christians who have just uh, gone to really great extremes and done crazy things and just get words to this effect, gotten out of control. Well, I, I probably, as I remember, I'd known people who would do, you know, people like who, you've seen the movies? In the old movie, the older movies, there's always some, maybe, maybe it's a spaceship movie or some, it's a, it's a, uh, it's uh, some cowboy or uh, uh, frontier and the soldier, and there's this crazy guy who is part of the group, and he's a Bible quoting, kind of supposed to be a Christian, and he's crazy. And you think, oh, my goodness, what is he going to suggest next? And in the space movies, he's the kind of guy who says, God does not want us to do this. And he goes and tries to find the lever, you know, that's going to blow them all up to stop them from ruining some something or other pristine paradise. And so that's kind of one of those little backstories that gets into the movies. And so, anyway, that was the kind of stuff that popped into my mind when I was told, Hey, be careful. Don't be overboard on this. Just chill it. Okay, all right, I'm going to leave it at that. Let's go. What's the first motivation? The judgment seat of Christ. I've got to stand before the Lord and give an account of myself. And I want to please him. I want to please him. Do you want to please him? And then Paul says, I want to please him. This is the part of the fear of the Lord. Now, the second motive is this. The atonement of Jesus Christ is to result in a life of self-sacrifice. Christ as Savior. Christ as judge. Christ as Savior. So it isn't all just sort of knees knocking. Above the Lord. What did I forget? Oh, I think of those times that I prayed and I wondered about people thinking what a great prayer I was. There goes all my prayers up in smoke. Oh, and the list goes on. All right, he says this. Look with me at the text. Look with me. For the love of Christ controls us. Now, got to do a little grammar work. I'll be, I have to be brief here. This uh, Greek student's subjective genitive, objective genitive, is this love of Christ, is that the love that Christ has for me or my love for Christ. That's the way I'm convinced based upon the way it's used in the noun with when you find 
this uh, love of Christ, you, agape is used, that's the word for love here, it's uh, referring to Christ's love for him, for us. So, if you want the technical explanation, Paul always used the subjective genitive when he used the word agape and then referred to a person. Okay, I'm going to plumb that any further. But I think that's what he's saying. In other words, it's Christ's love for me. I'm absolutely overwhelmed. Think of that. He died for me. He gave all this great, it's a sacrifice for my sin. Who do, we, do I think I deserved that love? No. And so therefore he says, because we have concluded this. By the way, that word control literally means, it's a compound word. It means to be hemmed in. Pressure. Pressure. Pressure applied. But it's a good pressure. I, I, this just, I don't know how, this is not a great, uh, I mean, a perfect analogy. But I just think of, say, ladies. You, I know you get into a certain mode when you've got somebody coming to visit. I know how this works. And uh, we men, we know how this works. A wise man had better know how this works. That, and maybe there's some person or family that's coming, you adore them. You adore that They have been so good to you. They have been such precious people. And you owe a lot to them, perhaps. Let's say that for this purpose. That, And they're coming, and what do you want to do? You're hemmed in. You're under pressure. But it's sweet pressure. <laughs> it's sweet pressure. So I've got to get it right. Honey, do we have enough coffee? <laughs> uh, oh, honey, you know, well, man, we've left those flower pots out front, and their birds have got a nest in them now. We need, you know, and all the... In the gutters, whoa, man, they're looking bad. And, uh, and well, you know, the list goes on. But you're hemmed in, you're pressured. But love of these people, for these people, and these people, their love for you and what they've done for you. All right, let's move on. Therefore, he said, and that, that one has died for all. Who is that? Christ. All, in place of, interesting preposition, who pair. In place of, a substitutionary term, uh, preposition. Therefore, all have sinned. That the death of Christ, sufficient to pay the penalty for all the sins of men. Now, there is an issue here that I'm going to run right by because I don't have time. But it's not because I don't like controversy. I'm not a stranger to controversy at times, but... There is a little debate that goes on between some, uh, you know, Calvinists with other Calvinists. Is there a limited atonement or is it, you know, is it an unlimited atonement? You familiar with this discussion? Uh, limited atonement, this is the L and the TULIP, T-U-L-I-P, total depravity, unlimited, uh, unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace and perseverance of the saints in a limited atonement. There are those who believe that Christ died only for the elect and for their sins. And for some, this would be a go-to verse. I don't think that's. I don't think you can make a conclusion based on this text. Certainly, did Christ die for believers? Well, absolutely. And we'll say that. So, can we keep that just right there and contain that without going off any further? And He died for all, that those who live might 
no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. There's Paul's motivation. I'm crucified with Christ, nevertheless, not I. But I, I, I live, uh, I've never had I've been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I live, but Christ lives me, lives in me. In the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and delivered himself up for me. Galatians 2.20. That's what he's saying. Now, it is it. here it is. I have uh, one, two questions, and then we conclude. One, what, when does the believer die? Not what you thought. In God's mind, the believer in Jesus Christ died when Jesus died. Whoa. We are then enveloped in God's unfailing love. We become free from ourselves. Next question. Exactly why did Jesus die? Dying with Christ leads then to living for Christ. He's freed me from living for myself and being a self-preoccupied person, self-possessed. He's freed me to live for him and live for others. Thank you, Lord. Ho, dance in the streets. But you know what? We live in a meet my needs culture. Oh, my goodness. You want to be countercultural? Well, just savor this one for a minute. You see it everywhere, this meet my needs thing. Self-help books, marriage improvement. You hear it all over the place. Self-esteem. Meet my needs. I know marriage seminars. Hey, I meet your needs. You meet my needs. Well, we'll just both be just totally possessed with ego. Oh, great. You have a great marriage. Why did Jesus die? To set you and me free from the nonsense of self-serving living. How might this look in my day-to-day life? Well, my responses to pain, suffering, difficulties, and disappointments, they're to run Godward. That's where I go with these things. I don't say you don't fall down and skin your knees and get bruised and have a hard time and cry and maybe can't sleep and it's hard and you're wrestling with God because it's because you love him. It's a lover's quarrel. Christ is now my reference point, not myself. In trials, I will thank God and orient myself according to divine wisdom. I will be reminded of how much I need God. I will look for ways to direct my gifts toward others. Everybody here has a gift package, natural, spiritual gift. If I love my neighbor and humility is my mindset, the direction of my mind is to serve others. Gentleness and patience are to be more important than getting what I want. Gospel esteem will eclipse eclipse self-esteem. I conclude. All right, let's get to it. All right, what we've done here in this passage, if you're still paying attention, is that we've come full circle back to the life-dominating issues of what? Meaning and motivation. Our meaning in life finds its reference point in Jesus in his death and resurrection. Is that clear? That's the believer's identity. What is it? My meaning in life is settled by my identification with Christ in his death and resurrection. We must see this and understand this. Remember that word no and the implications of this. 
So therefore, it comes down to this. What's my motivation? We spend our lives living in ways that honor Christ. I want to know what pleases Him. I seek to do what pleases Him. When I fail to do so, I grieve and confess my sin. I call out to Him for help. I need Him. My life is lived with Christ, gospel-centeredness. And I live, I live in the effect of that upon me, of Christ's death and resurrection. You know what came to mind? I thought of a movie. I did. Beth and I saw it together. It's a good movie. It's the movie, Sully. Oh, that uh, January the 15th, 2009. And this... Uh, Airbus A320 was taking off from LaGuardia to go to Charlotte. And in an extraordinary exercise in piloting, Captain Chesley Sully Sullenberger, what was he able to do? Land that Airbus A320 on the Hudson River. Now, this is not like water skiing. (laughs) Without engine power or airports. There were no casualties, 155 people. Everybody survived. The passengers, you know what? They really would, I would say they'd live the rest of their lives with gratitude to Captain Sully. He had, he had saved their lives. Actually, at the conclusion of the movie, if you haven't seen it, okay, you know, I'm not giving anything away, you know the outcome. But at the conclusion of the movie, in real life celebration at the end, you get right down to the credit part. You can see the crowd. There are all these 155 people. They're, I guess most of them look like they're there. And they step forward and say, seat 31B, seat 24A. And, they're, they're, and he, he's a very stoic guy. He's just one of those takes care of business, get it done, don't make any fuss over me, let's go get on do the next thing kind of guy. And, but they, you could just see they, they got their lives back. They could live. It showed a father and his two sons rushing up to the plane, you know, thinking, we got to get there, we got to get there. I think they were going to go out and go somewhere and play golf together. And they lived <laughs> to do that. Oh, they were grateful. You could just, you could feel it. You know, you know, I would, maybe I would feel. And they were honoring Sully for delivering them from death and giving them the opportunity to live the rest of their lives. Thank you, Lord your death for us that we could live our lives for one another but primarily for you to please you and we'll go to our graves praising you and then as we pass through we go into your presence and we really get into the celebration thank you Lord thank you Lord thank you for what you have done for us oh God, now move us out to those people, family, friends, neighbors, through this holiday season. They don't know you. And they think they're having a good time. But yet there's that hollowness. They probably know. Oh, Lord, use us as your instruments for the gospel's sake. Thank you. Thank you for the wonderful gift of eternal life in Jesus Christ. Move us, motivate us by that now in Christ's name. Amen.